over the years, I've had the opportunity to serve in a number of different ministry roles. And every time that God has transitioned us into something else, I've always worked extra hard at the end to make sure that that next person could hit the ground running. I always tried to set them up for success. But just because you're set up to be successful doesn't mean you will be. So you actually have to follow through. And that's what we're going to see in this first chapter as we talk about Judges on By the Verse. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of By the Verse. If you haven't already done so, please, you know the drill, like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to this material. Huge favor, please rate this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Go ahead and give it a great rating, even write a review. It helps the podcast get a little bit more exposure and it makes me feel good, okay? So please go ahead and do that. I thank you in advance. We're on our last episode. We gave you an overview and kind of an introduction to the book of Judges. So we are going to hop right into chapter one right now. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, So God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Okay, so the very first uh, few verses, uh, we find out that these things happen after the death of Joshua. But we should not take that statement literally to mean that the subsequent events in this chapter happen after uh, the death of Joshua. Uh, because we're going to find out that that's not entirely true. Really, that first phrase, after the death of Joshua, is in general referring to the events of the whole book, the events of this whole time period, okay? So it's ushering in the transition, um, but we're going to see that Joshua is still alive in chapter 2, okay? So actually, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are both introductions to the book, And so what we get in these chapters are big generalizations that characterize the nature of this time period. We should also note that when it says they inquired of the Lord, they probably used something like casting lots to discern what God's will was. 
Now, we have to remember that Israel's faith is still pretty crude at this point. Their religious practices aren't uh, very refined as they would later become further along in their history. Okay, So they discerned collectively that God wanted Judah to go up first to conquer the territory allotted uh, to Judah. This is significant because as the people marched through the wilderness, Judah often went first. We'll see this later in the book as well. Judah means praise. So the significance here is that praise goes first even before the actual battle. Now, more attention is given to Judah in this chapter than any of the other tribes mentioned in chapter 1. Now, verse 3 said that Judah asked Simeon, his brother, to go with him. This is important because Judah and Simeon were both southern tribes, with Simeon being the most southern. Later on, Simeon as a tribe is in some way is going to kind of dissolve into Judah during the kingdom period. But Judah asked Simeon to go with him. And some commentators will knock Judah for that and say that uh, Judah should have had more faith uh, to go and conquer their territory uh, with no other help besides the help of the Lord. I personally don't see it that way at all because I don't think that the writer of of Judges gives us a negative view of Judah on this point. I actually see this as a positive thing. Again, territory-wise, Simeon and Judah are connected in the south, and so it's almost like asking your closest friend to help you fight your battle, and then you, in turn, help your closest friend to fight their battle. I see it as a principle here that those closest to us can actually help us accomplish the things that God is asking us to do, and then we, in turn, repay the favor. Now, one of the first stories that's told here of Judah's success is that they conquered Bezek, and the leader of Bezek was called Adonai Bezek, which means Lord of Lightning. Now, if you ask me, that's a pretty terrifying villain name, okay? This must have been a bad dude. But Judah and Simeon defeat him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, which seems pretty cruel, until you get down to verse 7, and you realize that this is actually payback for what he himself had done to other kings. Now, besides being a little weird, I think what the writer of Judges is doing by including these details is to give us some insight into what the pagans thought, what these tribes thought was happening to them. See, in our modern way of thinking, we can't understand how God could justify sending the Israelites to literally annihilate whole groups of people. But it's important for us to acknowledge that this particular leader saw that what was happening to him was actually retribution for what he had done. He knew he deserved this. We think that he didn't deserve it and that these people didn't deserve this, uh, but they may not have actually seen it that way. So let's keep in mind that God waited until the sin of the Canaanites, which is a general term to refer to all of the people groups in uh, this whole area, he waited until their sin had 
reached its height, basically. According to Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham his descendants would come back after uh, the sin of the Canaanites had reached, you know, like its, its highest point. So God could have rescued his people out of Egypt way before they spent 400 years there. But it's almost as if God waited to rescue his own people, actually gave the Canaanites more time to repent. Instead, what we actually see is that instead of repenting, they actually got more and more vile. Okay, so they had opportunity, all right? So they may have seen what was happening to them differently than we see it now. We should not force our own sense of justice and fairness and right and wrong on the scriptures. The scriptures actually interpret themselves very well. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the next few verses and starting in verse eight. And then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the low land. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Hymen and Telmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sifer and captures it, I will give Asha my daughter for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Asha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negib, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, let me just give you uh, this uh, disclaimer. I probably am not pronouncing all these names of all these different people correctly, okay? I'm just doing the best I can do over here, all right? So the next thing that we see here is that Judah fights against Jerusalem. The people who lived there were called Jebusites, but it doesn't say that they drove the Jebusites out or that they utterly destroyed them. In fact, later in the chapter, we'll come to realize that Benjamin is the tribe immediately north uh, of Judah, and they did not drive out the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is really close to the border of Judah and Benjamin. So Jerusalem suffered and was burned, but the people were not driven out. Of course, we know that Jerusalem would serve ultimately many, many years later, centuries later, as Israel's capital, but it wasn't Israel's first capital. Obviously, much later in the history of Israel, when David was anointed to be king, he was anointed at the next city mentioned in this whole thing, the city of Hebron, which is uh, you know, it's significant and, and important because David reigned there for several years before ultimately going up and capturing Jerusalem and making Jerusalem the capital of the whole nation. Now, we also see in this passage the re-emergence of a great figure known as Caleb. 
He has survived the desert experience. He's still looking for his mountain to conquer, his place that was promised to him uh, for his inheritance and his lineage. Now, remember we said in our introduction that the book of Judges overlaps with the book of Joshua. It's not a clean break between the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges. They overlap a little bit. So what you will find is other retellings, other stories, other aspects of the conquering of these very same cities all the way back in Joshua 11 through 15. So Caleb offered up his daughter, Asha, as a reward uh, to any man in the tribe that would capture the city of Debir. So his nephew, who would later become the first judge in this book, goes off, captures it, and he gets the girl. Now, the interesting thing about Othniel and his new wife, Asha, is that these are people that represent what some have called, including Charles Spurgeon, like the ideal Christian prayer life. That's kind of what they represent. Othniel wasn't passive. He had an opportunity before him and he made the most of it. And then his wife followed that up with that same conquering spirit. She was not satisfied just with what she could get. She asked her father for a field and for springs, which obviously the importance of springs, you know, in a, in a drier type of place is huge. And her father's response isn't just to give her the bare minimum, but he gave her upper springs and lower springs so he could, so she could properly care for all of the flocks and herds that her and Othniel would have. This is a representation to us that we ought not to be passive in our prayer lives, but that we should ask and try to receive everything that our Father has for us, not because uh, you know, we, we think we can just barely get you know, a little bit, but because the heart of the Father is to bless us. That's what she asked for, was a blessing. The heart of the Father is to bless us abundantly, and her Father gave her much more than what she asked for, and that's what we should expect from our father as well. Let's read on starting in verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses's father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negib near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Esclan with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he did not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So here's kind of a, a side note. The author tells us that the Kenites, you know, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, 
Um, they settled with the people. Now, they had pretty much been right alongside the people ever since Jethro came out to meet Moses in the wilderness. Okay, so they've been around uh, the whole time, but they settled with uh, Judah uh, in this territory. Now, they're called Kenites here, and you may think, wait, I thought Jethro was a Midianite, um, but actually these are related people groups and they may have intermingled, okay? Uh, so that's why they're, they're just very closely associated, and that's why there's two different terms that's used here, okay? So now we have uh, Judah helping Simeon go and conquer its territory, and that was the agreement that they had. But then when we get back to Judah, we start to have our first serious problem. And it's, it's a problem that is going to compound as the chapter goes on. Before we get into that, I should note that Caleb uh, drove out the three sons of Anak, Anak being a very famous, notorious uh, giant. Uh, the, the, his descendants were notorious warriors, warlike people. Okay, so basically by including this, you've got this 80-something-year-old man who's still driving out giants. He's still not afraid, okay? He's still all about getting everything that God has from. What a beautiful testimony of a consistent and powerful life. But back to Judah in verse 19, it says they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, Israel didn't have any chariots, certainly not chariots of iron. And because these people lived in the plain and not in the mountainous regions, chariots were a huge technological and military uh, advantage. And so instead of having faith that God would drive these people out before them if they would just go and fight against them, Judah decided well, to leave them. But uh, we want to put a pin on this verse because I really think in chapter 2, this is going to become more significant. I think we're going to understand it better once we get to uh, chapter 2. Now, so Judah could not drive these people out. And then as we go on into verse 21, it begins to get even worse as we deal with all the other tribes because Benjamin, as I said before, well, they did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. The city was burned up, it was beat up, but Benjamin did not drive them out like they were supposed to. Jerusalem actually is inside the territory of Benjamin, just at the border of Benjamin and Judah, which is why many centuries later, when the, the kingdom of Israel broke into two, Benjamin and Judah uh, stayed together. And that's because Jerusalem was really just inside the territory of Benjamin. Okay, so that's a whole other thing. But this passage begins to open up really the failure of the people as a whole and specifically the rest of the tribes. So starting at verse 22, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. This 
is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ebliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Okay, so the house of Joseph is actually a reference to two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. These two tribes are referred here in other places as the house of Joseph. And what we see here is that they failed to drive out the people and instead they let the people live among them. So they conquered the land, but let the people live among them. And later on, at least in the case of Manasseh, and then we'll see later on several other tribes would end up forcing the Canaanites into slavery and using the people for their own purpose. It's interesting that the very same thing that they cried out to God about in Egypt because of what was being done to them, is the very same thing they turn around and do to somebody else. And that's just like us. We view how we are treated differently than how we view how others are treated. Now, we're not going to read all of the rest of uh, the verses because they're all very, very similar. They, they all pretty much say the same thing, just with different names in different territories. Okay, so in verse 27, Manasseh didn't drive out uh, all the inhabitants in several places. In verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out all the Canaanites. Uh, in verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out all the inhabitants of Kidron and several other places. In verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko and several other places. In verse 33, Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and several other places. And by the time we get to uh, verse 34, the tribe of Dan not only does not drive out the inhabitants of their territories that they're supposed to inherit, but they actually are run out by those inhabitants. The Amorites completely overwhelm them and press them out of their territory. I mean, this chapter illustrates the downward spiral of the whole book. It starts with Judah's feeling that it could not drive out the Canaanites in the plains. And that leads to the other tribes not even trying. So a could not turned into a bunch of did nots. And sometimes that describes our progression of disobedience. We think for whatever reason we cannot, and that develops into a did not or an unwillingness even to try. Not all of the tribes are even mentioned in this chapter. We didn't hear anything about Issachar or Gad or Reuben, but that's because this chapter is just a generalization of what happened throughout the whole country. While there may have been some early successes, especially early on with Judah, The best way to characterize everything that happened is that they conquered some places, but they didn't do everything that God had asked them to do. They didn't drive out the inhabitants. Instead, they abused the inhabitants. And so the story of Israel conquering the land that God had promised to them begins victorious, but quickly grinds down to a partial victory and then to flat out disobedience. 
Here's the takeaway from this chapter. Though there were some early victories, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Partial obedience is never considered obedience. In your own life, consider the things that God has put in your heart to do. How well have you followed through on those things? How well are you doing on that journey? Did you start out with a lot of energy, excitement, passion, some early victories, but over time, it has waned and now you have settled for quite a bit less than what God had in his heart for you. Well, like I said, this chapter is the first introduction of the book. Chapter two is the second introduction of this book. And it's really going to show us uh, what the whole rest of the book is going to be like. And I cannot wait to walk with you through chapter two on the next episode of By the Verse.